Well, I don't know if any of you ever been through uh, like a big lightning storm. Have you ever experienced that? Now, I'm not talking about these wimpy ones we have out here on the West Coast. I'm talking about those good old-fashioned Midwest, shaking-in-your-boots kind of lightning storm. Have you ever been experienced that? I mean, it's quite... It's quite impressive. I remember uh, my wife and I were back in Colorado a number of years ago, and we were, went, went through one of these storms. We were staying with a relative, and, you know, it was probably the most massive and powerful uh, lightning storm I've ever experienced. Even the locals were saying that it was bigger than, than an average storm that they'd gone through. And, I mean, we're sitting in the room trying to get to sleep, and, you know, we see flashes all around us. I mean, it's like the lights were on out. It's like the sun was out. And there's thunder, and the, the house is shaking, literally. The windows are rattling. We see stuff sliding along the, the uh, bookshelves. I mean, this was massive, like an earthquake. And, uh, you know, we never got to sleep, really, that night. It was so powerful. I remember another time I was in Idaho, and they have lightning storms up there occasionally. And normally, when they'd come, we'd go out to the back porch and kind of watch them. They were a little more tame than the ones we had in Colorado. And we were sitting there watching this one storm in particular, and you know how when the lightning bolt strikes, and what do you do? Start counting, right? By the way, it's five seconds per mile, if you didn't know. So we're counting, and you know, we weren't getting to five before we'd hear the light, the uh, thunder um, that roared. And, and so, you know, it's getting a little closer, but we were watching this thing, and all of a sudden, just out of the blue, uh, a huge lightning bolt struck about 50 yards away in our neighbor's yard, and they had a metal swing set. And man... I have never been that close to one of those. It was loud. I mean, it was this huge crack and uh, just shook the air around us. And needless to say, uh, we went inside after that. <laughs> but, you know, that gave me a real um, feel for just the power within lightning. And, you know, it's something that maybe if you've been through a natural uh, disaster or a natural occurrence like that, an earthquake or something like that, you get a feel for something. You realize you get those glimpses, those experiences where this thing's a little, this is more power than I could grasp or imagine. And I, I remember uh, just thinking that after seeing that. I, there was another time where I was going up to my grandparents' place. They live in the mountains. And uh, we were driving by and there's this huge pine tree that was in front of their property that had been split like a toothpick. And it was from a lightning strike that had hit that tree. I mean, just, just unimaginable power. And while lightning does contain power, in fact, one lightning bolt could probably run your house for a couple of weeks, there's a lot of power in that. But... It doesn't come close to the power of a humble saint on her knees before a holy and all-powerful God. And we're going to talk about that this morning. In Ephesians 3, Paul presents a prayer to the Lord, and in it contains four elements of a powerful prayer. I want you to turn to Ephesians 3 with me. And as you're turning, let's kind of get a running start to the passage here, because this, the location of this prayer is very important to understand in the context of the whole letter. If you remember back in chapter 1 when we started our journey in Ephesians, Paul had articulated this great hymn of praise to God for the work of the Trinity in our salvation. And then right at the end of that declaration of what God has done in us, in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, For this reason, and he moves to pray that the people that he's speaking to, the Ephesians, would understand the truths that he had articulated. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he does the same thing. He goes back to it and he's explaining and declaring the things that God had done in them. That how we were all dead in sin. We were all apart from Christ. We were all enslaved to the devil, to our flesh. And how God in his grace and mercy had, had plucked us from that. Had delivered us and changed us and brought us into the church, one new body. And Paul again was so overwhelmed by the implications of what God had done in them. He, he wants to pray one more time that God would help them to understand. We see that in Ephesians 3.1, where he again makes that statement, for this reason, based on everything I've just told you, he desires to pray. But before he gets to that prayer, as we talked about the last couple of times together, he has this parenthetical thought. He can't keep talking. He can't stop talking about the church. He can't stop talking about what God had done in bringing Jew and Gentile together as one body. And so he goes off on this parenthetical tangent discussing his gospel mission to bring to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So he delays in his prayer a little bit, but back in, as we arrive in chapter 3, verse 14, he begins again for this reason, to give us that prayer. And his prayer here is extremely important. 
I think it's one of the most important parts of this letter because what it does is it connects the truths and the doctrines and the theology of chapters 1 to 3 with living it out in chapters 4 through 6. It's vital to understand, and prayer is that connection point between the truth and between its application. And it's my desire that the Lord use His prayer here to motivate us to a greater commitment to communing with God. You know, as we approach prayer, it's always one of those, you feel that little tinge of guilt, right? Every time prayer and evangelism comes up, we go, I'm not doing that enough. You know what? None of us pray enough. Let's just, let's just be upfront about that. You know, none of us are praying as much as we need to. I'm not. We could always be praying more and always be praying more fervently and correctly and consistently. My desire this morning as we look at Paul's prayer isn't that you just feel bad and so you do it more. It's that, that as we unfold and see what the Holy Spirit revealed through Paul, that, that we would be moved and motivated to pray out of a great desire. To pray because we know that through that, God's hand moves. And so as we look at Paul's prayer together, may it move us in that same way, to have the same heart of prayer that Paul did. And with that, I would ask you please to stand as we read Paul's prayer together in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen may be seated here Paul gives us four elements of powerful prayer and they are praying to the father praying for strength praying in faith and praying with praise Let's look at that first element in verses 14 and 15, praying to the Father. Again, Paul begins his prayer with that statement, for this reason, taking us back to 3.1 where he started and intended to, to pray for this reason. And that statement tells us he's basing this prayer upon something he's just said. And that something is contained in chapter 2, as we talked about uh, earlier, how God, who brought us from a desperate state of being lost without Him, not only into salvation, not only into a relationship with Him, but also reconciliation with one another. And how He had created one body, and that we as a, as a body are the church, the temple of God, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And Paul is so overwhelmed with that thought that he, he's moved to want to pray one more time. And he starts here with the... <clears throat> Uh, uh, with the statement, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's articulating here, he's beginning his prayer for those he's been speaking to. And notice, before we get to the content of his prayer, notice how he begins that with, I bow my knees before the Father. He specifically addresses the first person of the Trinity. Now this brings up a question that, that I'm often asked about is, since God is triune, since he is three persons, one God, one in essence, but three persons, who should we pray to? Do we pray to the Father, the, the Son, the Spirit, all three, combination? I mean, how, how does that work? We pray to God as a whole. You know, sometimes maybe you've heard prayers where someone's praying to the Father and, and they're going along, all of a sudden they say something like, thank you for dying for our sins. Well, it wasn't the Father who died for our sins, right? It was His Son. Or maybe you hear somebody, they're praying to Jesus, and, and they'll say something like, we're so grateful that you sent your son. Well, he is the son. You know, I think sometimes as we pray, we get kind of confused a little bit. Or, Who am I speaking to? God in general? Or, uh, and so it's important to understand, I think, how do, we, how do we pray to the Trinity? Does it matter even? I mean, he's God, right? So, well, it does matter. And, and God has actually given us a pattern, a model to which and how we should pray. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 18, we see that model of prayer. Paul talks about their access to God. 
which is this idea of praying to him, coming before him. And notice he says there in 2.18, For through him, that is Christ Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile believers, have our access, that is the prayer, in one spirit, he's the means, to the Father. He is the one we pray to specifically. And there's a picture that Paul is presenting here. This idea that, that in prayer we, we have access to the throne, throne room of God, to the Father. And that the way we gain access and entrance to that throne room to give our request to the Father is through the Son. He's the one that opens the door. That through His atoning death on the cross for our sins, that we now have access to the Father to pray to Him, to have a relationship with Him, to commune with Him. And it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who walks us in, who guides us in, who takes us into the presence of the Father. It is in the Spirit that we pray. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Ephesians 6. But I just want you to get this idea and this pattern here that Paul lays out for us, that it is prayer to the Father through the Son by His Spirit. Prayer is almost exclusively to the Father if we look in Scripture. Almost all the time, prayers are directed to the Father. Back in Ephesians 1, 17, Paul prayed that the Father of glory may give to you. In Matthew 6, 9, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. You remember what he said there? Pray then in this way. Pause. Our Father, right? Who art in heaven, who is in heaven. Back a few verses earlier than that, in Matthew 6, 6, Jesus said this. But when you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. In John 16, 23, Jesus said, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Colossians three seventeen. do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If you look in Scripture, actually, there are only a few places where Jesus is specifically prayed to. Stephen did it uh, just before he died. He, he gave his spirit. He said, Lord Jesus, commit to you my spirit. Or in Revelation, the second to last verse in the Bible is a prayer to Jesus. John, the apostle, prayed, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So there are prayers to Jesus. If you look through the scriptures, though, particularly the New Testament, I don't believe there's anywhere where there's a specific prayer given to the Holy Spirit, directed to the Holy Spirit. So does that mean that we shouldn't be praying to Jesus or the Spirit, that it's wrong? What do you think? No. Jesus is God. Holy Spirit is God. They're all equally God in essence. They're all equally deserving of our worship, of our obedience, of our loyalty, our allegiance. But there is a pattern here that's been laid out in Scripture regarding prayer. Our triune God desires that we pray specifically and directly to the Father primarily. And that we come to Him only through the blood of His Son. And we come to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made this apparent when he simply said this, Pray then in this way, our Father. So Jesus there himself tells us our model of prayer. And I probably just generated a lot more questions than I answered. But I think it's important to really think about as you pray. Who, who, who are you speaking to? And, and are you really thinking as you're speaking to? I mean, if I'm talking to one of you and you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you and you know, say, Hey, Harry, how's, how's it going, Joe? By the way, what's going on, Bob? You know, and, no, I'm talking to Harry. So I need to make sure that I'm cognizant of that. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit to help intercede for our prayers, because we don't know exactly how we should be praying half the time. <laughs> Probably all the time, actually, I should correct that. And so the Holy Spirit helps us, and that is how we come to the Father and pray to Him through, through the Son. Paul said in Ephesians 3.15, he talks about the Father here, and he makes this statement, from whom... Every family in heaven and earth derives its name. He's pointing attention to the fact that it is the Father who is the one in authority. Family here is the idea of really a family headed by the Father. It's pointing to the the Father as the authority in the family. And it's not focusing on a familial relationship. He's not saying everybody, God is the Father of everyone in the sense of uh, that we are His uh, children. Not everybody is that way, has that relationship. He's speaking here of the idea of origin. That we all come from God, right? We are all created by Him. He is an authority over all of us. He has dominion over all of us, just as a father would in his home. And Paul addresses his prayer to the sovereign Father. That's the idea here. And notice what he says there. I bow my knees before the Father. Again, this brings up another question about prayer. What is the appropriate posture Is there a specific way, a specific way that my body is supposed to be as I pray? 
Do I, am I supposed to pray on my knees? Is that what's commanded? Or is there some other prescription, some other way that God desires that I pray to him? Psalm 95, 6 declares, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. We see many examples of believers in Scripture kneeling as they pray. Daniel 6, three times a day, Daniel would uh, bow his knees before the Lord facing Jerusalem. Peter is described as kneeling in Acts 9 or, or Paul in Acts 21. When Jesus was praying in the garden, Luke 22 says he was kneeling. But Scripture doesn't prescribe that prayer only be by kneeling. In fact, there are probably more examples of people praying while they're standing. Many examples of that uh, standing. Also, David prayed uh, in 1 Chronicles 17 while he was sitting. Many examples of those praying lying prostrate on the ground before God. In fact, Solomon, it's interesting, at the temple dedication in 1 Kings 8, it says there that as he began his prayer, he was standing uh, before the Lord with his arms stretched out in prayer. And then at the end of his prayer, the, the scripture notes that he got up from kneeling. So he started his prayer standing and at some point got down on his knees before God. So he did both in the midst of his prayer there. Scripture shows people, describes people as praying with their hands lifted. In fact, 1 Timothy 2.8 talks about us lifting holy hands. Other times hands are not lifted during prayer. You see, it's not the posture of your body that matters the most, right? It's the posture of what? Your heart. It's the attitude here, not what you show on the outside, but what's coming out from the inside. A person could be bowing on their knees, prostrate before God, and still be irreverent. We need to understand that. Paul's approach here, as he talks about, I bow my knees before the Father, conveys an attitude of reverence, of honor, of respect to the Creator, the supreme ruler of the universe. Ephesians 3.12 does tell us that we, through Christ, have a bold, confident access before Him. But we always have to remember who we're approaching, right? God welcomes us freely through His Son by His Spirit. But we always have to remember it is God that we're approaching. And there's no mandate in Scripture that you have to be on your knees every time you pray. In fact, if you do that while you're driving, you might find yourself in trouble. <laughs> right? There are times you don't have to be on your knees. But you know what? I found that in the privacy of my own home in prayer, when I'm on my knees, it, it reminds me of something. It reminds me of being needing to be humble before God. It reminds me of who I'm speaking to. And I didn't encourage you, if you're physically able to at times get on your knees, I would encourage that. But again, there's no mandate, no command here. The whole point is, am I on my knees in my heart? Am I bowing before Him from my soul? And Paul here shows us by example, prayer to the Father is a prayer of humility. It's humble prayer. The second element is seen in verses 16 through 19 of powerful prayer, and that is to pray for strength. Pray for strength. Paul gives in verse 16 the specific content of his prayer when he says this, that he would grant you or give you according to his riches, the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You see the specific request here? It's that God would strengthen the saints with power. We've seen this word power a lot here in Ephesians. It's all over the place. Uh, power, working, energy. The Greek word here is dynamos, which we get the word dynamite from. But, but it's not an explosive or destructive power that he's talking about here. It's the power or the ability to do something. It's the, the power to, the uh, capability to perform a certain task. It's creative power that he's talking about here. Paul's not praying that God would just give the saints some great power, but that they would strengthen to have the ability to do something. Now, he doesn't tell us that something specifically here. Some have suggested that it is strengthened uh, with power ability to battle sin or to overcome doubt or fear or discouragement or to fight the devil. Others, others have proposed that it's strength to have wisdom or holiness or faith. Now, it's true we need strength for all these things. Philippians 4.13, right? Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, gives me the ability to do all things. But I think here in 3.16 of Ephesians, Paul has something else in mind. If we look at this flow of thought from what he said before this prayer and what he says after this prayer, we can get an idea specifically of what he's asking God to strengthen believers to do, to be able to do. Right? Remember before this prayer, what has he been talking about? God has saved you and redeemed you and made you one new man in the body of Christ, connected to all believers 
to be a dwelling of God in the Spirit, to be a temple as to the Lord. And then after this prayer, Paul, if you look in four one, he talks about walking in a manner worthy of his calling. And then he gives command after command after instruction in those last three chapters of how to live. So the connection point is taking from who we are in Christ to who we, how we should live in Christ. See, this prayer is he's asking God to strengthen us to be able to live out who we are. To live as believers that he's called us to be as children of God. As those who have been saved and sanctified in one body, unified. Now that's hard to do. Unity is incredibly difficult to achieve. It's hard enough between just two people. Let alone hundreds. So God, uh, Paul is saying here, God help us. Help us to live out. To live with one another in the manner in which you have called us. As one unified body. Paul's asking that God would strengthen us to be who we are. Remember back in Paul's first prayer in 115. He prayed that they would understand the truths of who they are as children of God. And here he prays now that they would be able and able to live them out. And that first prayer Paul was saying, God help them to know your power within them. Now Paul is saying, God help them to use your power within them. His first prayer was for enlightenment to know the truth. This second prayer is for enablement to apply the truth. And notice what Paul says here. Where does that empowering take place? In the inner man, right? This idea of the inner you, your soul, your spirit, your, your essence, your being. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul describes basically every person as, as two parts. He says there, therefore we do not lose heart, but through our out, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Right? He declares there this idea we have an outer you, your body, your, your physical uh, person that is decaying. And one day Paul talks about it earlier, it's like a tent that is temporary. That's the outer you. The real you is the inner you, right? Your spirit, your soul, your heart. The center of your emotions, of your being, of your will. And that is the place that needs to be empowered. As you're inside, your very soul, your very heart. And we know these things, but it's important to remember and be reminded of that. That we can only live out this unity and, and love for one another. And, and the things that God has called us to do in Christ. If God does a work inside of us. In our very heart. It's not the externals that fix us. It's the internal that needs to be dealt with. That empowering does not come from ourselves, right? Where does it come from? Who does it come from? Verse 16. Through the Spirit. Through His Spirit in the inner man. We can't do it on our own. This is yet another reminder that God must do the change in us. And you know, how often do we read passages that give us these commands? You know, we often jump to, you know, there's an issue in our life. We jump to chapters 4 to 6 in Ephesians or or other uh, application passages that give us commands. And we we just look at the command and then we, we try to go and obey it in our own strength. I mean, how often do we do that? How often do we cut corners by neglecting to pray or, or by neglecting to study or meditate on His Word or by neglecting to have fellowship with one another? And then we still try to obey these commands. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a trip to, to Anaheim, and I know I've got to use my car to get there. It's too far for me to walk or, or to run. So I jump in my car, and there's no gas in it. And then I go, well, I call some friends over. Hey, I need you to help me push my car to Anaheim. That's what we do. We show up in a pastor's office or an elder or counselor. Oh, you need to help me obey this. I need some uh, checklist. I need some, some tricks to how to figure this out. And a good counselor would say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, you do need to obey that. But, but let's take a step back for a second. Let's make sure we got gas in the tank. Because I'm not going to help you push your car 45 miles. I got some funny stories, but I'll have to wait for another time. Um, <laughs> you know, Paul is reminding us here that, that we can't do it on our own. We have to pray. We have to meditate on His Word. We have to fellowship with the saints. We have to spend time with the Lord. These are the means in which the Holy Spirit works through us to be able to carry out who we are in Christ, to be able to live in the way that God has designed and created us to live as believers. We can't cut corners. 
It's only through His Spirit. And there's a means and a way in which God's Spirit works through us. To have a prayer, pun intended, of living out the unity that God has designed us to have as a body, we must beg God to strengthen us through His Spirit in our very souls to be able to do that. This is a point we need to ask ourselves. Just how often do you set your time aside to do that? Yeah, this is the ouchy portion of our message here. What does your prayer life look like, brothers and sisters? Do you hastily offer up requests here and there throughout the day? Do you dutifully run through a prayer checklist in your devotion time? Or or do you neglect prayer altogether at times because of a busy schedule or something like that? And when you do pray... What's the content of your prayer? Would you say your prayer focus is on the spiritual or the physical? Would you say that it's on the eternal or the temporary? Is the aim of your prayers to get out of a trial or to grow through the trial? Is praying for material possessions given greater importance than for eternal riches? It's not wrong to pray for blessing. It's not wrong to pray that God would remove a trial. It's not wrong to pray that He would give provision or or eliminate pain. But remember the greater priority in prayers. It's confession. It's praise. It's asking God to give us a deeper relationship with Him. Salvation. Growth in Christ. Pray not just for God's help, but for God Himself. Pray as Paul did for spiritual understanding that we might know his word as we read it and study it, that we might be able to apply it and live it out. Oh, if we would pray consistently and earnestly in this way, we would see change, amazing change within our own hearts, within our homes and here at Calvary, within the church. And to help motivate us to pray. God, uh, Paul, Paul doesn't hear by his example, you know, beat us down. Say, you're not praying enough. Pray more. Pray harder. Get with it. Quit goofing off. Maybe some of us need to hear that. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul's speaking to us and he gives us these results in order to motivate us to pray in this way. In verses 17 through 19, we see a, a progression of results one after the other. That when you do this, so that this will happen. So that this will happen. So that this will happen. It's this chain of uh, linking uh, various things that take place, various results with those connector words, so that or that. Kind of like be the idea if, you know, I give you $10 so that you would go to In-N-Out, so that you would buy me a cheeseburger. Grilled onions extra spread, by the way. (laughs) So that my hunger would be satisfied, right? These are progressive results. That's what's going on here. Paul prays that they would be strengthened in their inner man, through the Spirit, so that, and the first result is, Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Now that sounds like a a little bit of an odd statement, because Paul's speaking to believers here, right? He referred to them as saints back in 1 verse 2, and all through the letter, he's speaking to believers. So what's he talking about here, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? Isn't Christ in our hearts when we become believers, when we repent and believe? So Galatians 2.20 says that it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So what's he saying here? Well, the important thing to, is to understand what that word dwell means. Dwell here has the idea of a, of a, of a settled dwelling, a permanent habitation, a, a comfortable residing with. I like how one pastor described it. He said here, the connotation is not simply that of being inside the house of our hearts, but of being at home there. Settled down as a family member. Christ cannot be at home in our hearts until our inner person submits to the strengthening of His Spirit. Until the Spirit controls our lives, Jesus cannot be comfortable there, but only stays like a tolerated visitor. Paul's teaching here does not relate to the fact of Jesus' presence in the hearts of believers, but to the quality of His presence. Right? There's a difference between inviting a person over to your house and making him feel welcome in your home. That's what Paul's getting at here. As we pray to be strengthened, that God would would help us to live out who we are in Christ, Christ feels more comfortable in our hearts. He has a more settled, permanent residence there. Not like he's going to ever leave, but how welcome is he? Christ dwelling in our hearts then leads to another wonderful result that we would understand, come to know his vast love in us and for us. 
Look at verse 18. Paul says there, so that, there's that result statement again, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and height and depth. Comprehend here simply means to understand. Paul says that as Christ dwells in our heart through faith, then we would, would be able to comprehend, to understand, to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth. But then Paul doesn't finish the sentence. Of what, of, of what Paul? Well, some people, theologians love those blank spots because they love to insert their ideas of what they come up with very elaborate thing. Oh, he's talking about this or that or other thing. You know, some have said here that that these dimensions represent the cross or others talk about it represents the vastness of the church. Or he's talking about the power of God, the wisdom of God, salvation. But I don't think we have to reach outside of the text in order to figure out what he's referring to here. If we just read the immediate context, we see in verse 17 that he says in love. And then in verse 19, he talks about the love of Christ. In fact, verse 19, he gives a parallel statement to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. What he's talking about here in both verses 18 and 19 is that we would come to have an understanding of what is really unknowable. That we could grasp what can't be handled, that we could plumb the depths of an infinitely deep well, that we could fathom the unfathomable. And that is to know the love of Christ for us. Paul here, I think, leaves a gap in verse 18 because he is so enraptured by the thought. Paul loves to wax poetic often. And I think he's, he leaves this open because he's so caught up with what he's thinking about here. I mean, think about what he's talking about. The love of Christ. That Christ, as a result of dwelling in our hearts, we can understand that love even more. It's a love that began our relationship with him. Notice there in verse 17, he says, having been rooted and established in love. We were grounded. The relationship we have with God is because of his love, right? Reminds me of Ephesians 1.4. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons. Or Ephesians 2, verse 4. God made us alive. Why? Why did God bring life? Why did God raise us? Why did he save us? Why? You can look. You can cheat. Verse 2, verse 4 of chapter 2. God saved this because of his mercy and the great love with which he loved us. Jesus himself, in an act of unimaginable humiliation, became a man, right? He lived how long? 33 years or so here on earth. He endured the stench of wickedness all around him, a holy God among an unholy people 24 7. Jesus subjected himself to imperfect human parents, to an unjust government, to corrupt religious leadership, right? And he willingly endured, right, a brutal death, disgraceful death, a shameful death. And he continues to intercede on behalf of us. Why? What motivated him to do that? Why in the world would Jesus, any one of those things, think about just becoming a man, Why would he do that? Why would he suffer a a shameful death? And why would he for all eternity choose to keep a physical body? Why would he do that? His vast and profound love. That an infinite God would do this. You see, Jesus' love for you cannot be measured. He says it surpasses knowledge. You know, we'll, we'll learn more and more about his love, but there's a point. It, it's beyond what we can know fully. Perhaps you've never experienced that kind of love. Perhaps you have spent your life wanting love. All of us have, right? We all want to be loved infinitely. We all want to be cared for. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be appreciated. Maybe you've been looking for that in money or entertainment or sex or success or fame or drugs and and you still haven't found it. Be honest. You haven't found it. And maybe those things give you a temporary joy or pleasure, temporary happiness. But you know, it doesn't last, does it? Those things don't provide the kind of love that we're looking for. And usually what they give us are consequences that are very painful. But this vast love of Christ 
This is beyond those things. His love lasts. His love satisfies. You're like the woman at the well. She had multiple lovers. She was looking for it in relationships. But she never found it. And Jesus offered something to her that day that he met her that is still available to us today. Remember what he told her? He said, I have living water for you to drink and you will never thirst again. Repent of your disobedience to God and turn from your sinful ways. Quit going to those empty wells to find satisfaction. Those only end up in hell. Those only lead you not to joy, but to torment. Look to Christ in faith. Because of his great love, he died so that you might live. Confess your sins to him. Place your trust in him. Commit your life to him. And then you will be rooted and grounded and established in love. He can forgive you and give you the living water you've been looking for. But haven't yet found the living water of eternal life. And what's so amazing is that in Him, you experience that love and it continues to grow. As we walk through life, as we go through the struggles of life together, as we deal with circumstances and situations in our life, and as God brings us through those things, the things He teaches us in the midst of those, we better understand, we gain a little bit more knowledge of that love that He has for us. As a child of God, you will spend a lifetime discovering the wonderful love of the Savior, beyond what you can imagine. There's a pattern that's that's building here as Paul is speaking to us. You see that the idea that he prays that we would be that we would be strengthened with power in the inner man, and that would lead to Christ having a settled permanence in our hearts, and, and that would lead to us gaining a, a greater knowledge of his love for us. But he's not done yet. There's another one. There's another result that comes after that, and this one is a doozy. That's a, a Greek word, duzimos. It means big, huge. Look it up, Ed. I'm, ser- I'm serious. Duzimos. God has a duzimos for us to consider here. And that is when Paul says, as you pray that God would strengthen you with power in your inner man, that Christ would dwell in your hearts with faith, resulting in us having a greater understanding of his love for us. And that leads to this final pinnacle duzimos, which is that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. (laughs) That sounds like a doozy moss, doesn't it? What is he talking about there? Is he saying we'll become like God? No, he's not talking about essence here. It's not talking about we're going to become God or, or some essence of his divinity will be imparted to us. No, there's only one God for all eternity, and we ain't him. Rather, the idea here is not his essence that we are being filled with. It is his character. His attributes. Being filled with His fullness is to have His attributes on display through us. Kind of like what Paul was getting at with the fruit of the Spirit. That as we walk by the Spirit, we'll have love, joy, peace, and the rest. It's kind of like when you say a person's full of joy, right? What do you, full of joy, right? What do you mean by that? Right? That, the, that person is characterized by joy. Joy keeps coming out of them. It like oozes out of every pore. In their body. Well, being filled with the fullness of God is that same kind of thing that, that people see God and His character through us. To pray for strength in the inner man leads to Christ's settled dwelling, which leads to a better grasp of His amazing love to us, which leads to being filled with God's character. Then we're living that life that Paul desired we live and carry out from chapter 2. It is then that we are living. A life in Christ. I want you to take a step back. Pause here a minute. This is important to do when we look in the scriptures. To to just, okay, what did I just read here? Let me think about these. These three statements are pretty amazing to consider and ponder. What if these things were actually happening here in us? What if Christ had a settled permanence in each of our hearts? What if we were grasping more the vastness of Christ's love? And truly understanding what that means. What if the fullness of God had filled, was filling each of us? What would this place be like? What would it be like, you think? I think it'd be pretty amazing. But are we there yet, brothers and sisters? We're not there yet, are we? Why is that? 
Why don't we see the unity and the energy, the excitement, the the conversions, the prayer, the fellowship, the service, the giving, the joy? Why don't we see it? It looks like verses 17 to 19. Could it be that maybe our prayer lives are a little anemic? Could it be that we don't fervently ask God to help us grasp what it means to be in Christ? Could it be that we don't beg Him to strengthen us, to live out who we are in Christ? Could it be that the busyness and the distractions and the self-reliance that is so much a part of our lives is keeping us from depending on God? Brothers and sisters, God just wants us to ask. You know, in a second, right? God could save Burbank in a second, right? Right? I mean, he did that in Jerusalem, didn't he? How many? 3,000 plus souls? Like that. Peter preached. Bang! We got a church service going on here. Thousands of people coming to the Lord in a moment. God could do that at any point in time, any second. Right? I think he wants us praying more. That's the means in which he works. Prayer and his word. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. We need to pray fervently. We need to pray consistently. And we need to pray rightly. And I'm not done yet, but I want to pray. So let's pray right now. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord. Father, I just know none of us in this room, Lord, understand this like we need to. Because we need your spirit to help us understand. We need insight from him to help us know what all of this means. What it is to be in Christ and who we are as saved children of God. Lord, expand our ability to understand this and and help us, strengthen us to be able to live this out. So that our lives would be consistent with Lord being one unified body of Christ. One church made up of your children, loving one another, as you've called us to, being unified, knowing you. God, we cannot do this without you. You must be the one to change our hearts, to work in our inner souls that we might live out all that we've been reading and talking about these last several months. Lord, I pray that you would show your mercy upon us, transform this church, transform each one of us to those who love, serve you, and pray to you, who pray with or great passion and urgency, knowing that you will work within that. We thank you that you listen to us. Pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, we don't have a lot of time left. We've only done two elements of powerful prayer. I'm going to just... Uh, speed through the next couple because I think they're important to see. We'll just look at them by way of uh, really just a, a quick look. Paul says in verse 20, basically shows us the third element is to pray in faith. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. This is a description of, of, of a God who is able. This is a description of a man who knows and has faith in a God who can do anything. One preacher said, no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. (laughs) I think he's right. How in the world did Paul get the idea, an over-the-top idea, and praying and asking God, fill us with God. God, fill us with you. May we be filled up to your fullness. I mean, that's an audacious prayer. Where did Paul get the idea he could do that? Because he knows God is able to do beyond, exceedingly, abundantly, far, far, beyond what we could ask or even think. God is powerful God. How many times, though, do we go to the same God with meager requests or doubts? This man named Ryan Canelli is the current world record holder in the bench press. Listen to this. He benched 1,075 pounds. Just a little more than I can do. Um, <laughs> and for those of you who may not know, bench press, you lie on a bench and you lift this this weight from your chest, fully extending your arms and holding it above your head. (laughs) Almost 1,100 pounds. Amazing. Well, imagine if I had Ryan over to my house one day. I'd say, Ryan, could you do me a favor? Um, Well, maybe it's too much to ask. Maybe, Maybe you wouldn't want to. Well, maybe you can't, but... 
could you help me move my couch? <laughs> move your couch? That guy could move my whole living room. And isn't that sometimes how we approach Almighty God? God, could you move my couch? The God who created trillions of stars and holds them up right now by the word of his power. The God who created all of us and sustains us at all time. The God who transformed millions of sinners. And yet, how often do we timidly come and ask him to move our couch? I know at times we pray meekly because we, we don't know what God wants to do. We don't know his will. And it's true, we don't often know that about a specific healing or a, an illness or providing a certain job or, or receiving a particular blessing. But, but brother and sister, there are some things we do know about what God wants to do in our lives. Right? We know God wants us to know Him, right? We know that God wants us to understand and apply His Word. We know that God wants us to be sanctified, to be holy. We know that God wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son. We know that God wants to complete the work that he started within us, right? Scripture says that. God wants to do these things. These things, we need to pray for them with conviction and in faith. Pray and believe that God will answer. Don't get trapped into thinking you can never change, that you can never get over that sin in your life, that you can never have a marriage that's pleasing to God, that you can never display true love or joy or peace or kindness to others. That's wrong thinking. God wants to do those things in your life. He wants to transform you. Yeah, maybe if we have an illness or something and he may or may not heal it based on his reasons that sometimes he doesn't let us know about. But I know he wants us to be holy. I know he wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Pray for that. I know he wants us to understand his word. He wants us to live it out, doesn't he? Why would he give it to us if he didn't want us to follow it? If he didn't want us to live a life that expresses who God is to a lost and dying world. Pray for those things and pray with confidence. God wants to do a work in us. Pray, God, help me understand who you are. Cause me to know what you've done for me. Give me insight into who I am in Christ. Let your power work through me. You know what? God's already had that power work in you if you're a child of God. If He saved you, that took a lot of power to change your heart. (laughs) We talk about stubborn, rebellious kids. We're all stubborn and rebellious. And you know how hard it is to convince a stubborn child to do what you want them to do, right? We're all firstborns. (laughs) But God's power was able to change you And that power is still at work in you. As Paul said in verse 20, according to the power working within us. So pray in faith. Pray for strength. Pray to God. And fourthly, pray with praise. You know, Paul ends this first half of his letter the way he began it. Back in 1.3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in 3.21, he ends it with, To Him be the glory in His church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, I think this is an element that's often missing from our prayer, and that's just giving praise to God. Giving glory to God and praise shouldn't be confined to the pew on Sunday, but it should happen in the prayer closet on Monday, right? We can praise God at any place and any time, but especially in prayer. Especially in prayer. Didn't teach us didn't Jesus teach us that? Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Honored be your name. Glory to your name. Holy, your name is holy. Your name is to be revered. The Psalms are loaded with prayers of praise. And we just need to remember, let not our prayers be an endless list of requests for God, but may they also be filled with adoration and worship of God. Our Father loves to answer our requests, and He invites us to ask, but... In that asking, let's not remember that in the end it is all for His glory, isn't it? You know, we often hear people use the phrase, the power of prayer. It's not the praying in itself that contains the power though, right? It's who we're praying to. It is praying to God, the God who created all things and has unfathomable power. There was a man named Edward Payson 
he lived with just such a conviction. He was born in the late 1700s. He was a pastor of a church in Portland, Maine for about 20 years. And during his ministry, he saw over 700 souls come to Christ. It was because of his commitment to two things that that came about. The commitment to preach the word of God and his commitment to prayer. People often referred to him as praying Payson of Portland. And it was said of him that he studied theology on his knees. He often would have a Bible open before him as he studied, praying on his knees that God would give him insight and wisdom as he meditated on the scripture. His journal entries are a rich source of encouragement. There are some pamphlets uh, um, called Praying Payson. I'd encourage you to, to read. One such journal entry in September of 1807, he wrote this. I was forced or favored with the greatest degree of freedom and fervency in interceding for others. I seemed to travail in birth with poor sinners and could not help hoping that God is about to do something for his glory and the good of souls. This was a man who met with God. He prayed uh, two hours a day. He was committed to living a life on his knees. And in fact, after he died, his body was, was being washed and prepared for burial. And someone made the observation that his knees were abnormal. They were thick and hard and calloused, kind of like a camel. After his death, there were found in his room next to his bed these deep grooves in the hard wooden floor, six inches long, that happened to be the width of Payson's knees, those thick, callous knees. This was a man who truly believed the power of praying to a great God. The church needs more praying Paysons. And it's my desire that these verses here may have challenged us and motivated us and encouraged us to realize the, the power and the importance of praying to God and, and praying for the right things. May the Lord make our church full of camel knees. Let's pray. Father, we can't commune with you enough. We can't pray to you enough. Lord, help us to know how to pray rightly. Help us to be committed to spending that time with you. Lord, move in us to apply your word, Lord, to live it out. Strengthen us in our inner, inner souls, in our hearts, that we may or be able to carry out these wonderful, wonderful truths, these riches that you have given us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be as your servant, Payson, and the so many others in history who, who, Lord, had a conviction of spending time with you in prayer. Lord, may you work in us. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.